All right, we are concluding 1 John tonight. I've entitled 1 John, Remember. Remember. And the more, the more I spent time in pondering over how, how to deal with this, because uh, my buddy Mick and I were looking at this verse by verse as we always do. We're like, oh, we got to talk about this, we got to talk about that. And then yesterday I just spent some quiet time with this passage, and this image kept coming to mind. Legacy. What do I want people to remember? And as a man, that's something that I deal with. I'm concerned about, well, one day I'm going to grow old and I'm going to have, you know, these people that are looking up to me over the years maybe, or they might listen to my voice. Maybe they'll listen to my voice because I'm an old man. And what am I going to tell them? What am I going to leave them with? What kind of knowledge or wisdom? What are You know, in the movies, we're like, oh, the, the person's going to die. What are your parting words? And we're looking at that like, okay, someone's final words mean a lot. And I was... Uh, I was drawn to this moment I had uh, with my dad, and my dad died la around last Thanksgiving. He died very quick. We, it, was, it was a surprise. We had no idea it was coming. He was in the hospital, and he went in for a routine surgery. He never left the hospital, and it was very, it was, it was, it was something that happened so quickly. I was at work as usual on a Sunday morning. I was helping people in church, and all of a sudden, I start getting phone calls, Dad is declining. Dad is declining. And the way it worked out was I couldn't get out of town fast enough. I live, you know, three and a half hours away from my hometown. I wasn't going to get down there because Dad was declining so fast. And it got to the point where I'm thinking, man, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And, my, and all of a sudden, I was about to get out of town, and, and I got this one more phone call. And it was my brother-in-law, and he said, Joel... The family's all gathered around dad. And dad's not conscious, but they're keeping him alive so you can say goodbye. Everyone else has had their goodbyes. But we want to give you one chance because you can't be here. And again, I just couldn't get down there fast enough. Even if I sped down the interstate and broke land speed records, he, de he declined so quickly it wasn't even possible. So as we, we, put, we put the phone on speakerphone, we put it by his head. So dad was unconscious, laying in the bed, and I said, okay. And he says, Joel, we're about ready. We've all said our goodbyes. Now you have, here you go. My goodness, what do you say? You know, if I had this long, drawn-out speech or something, okay, dad, here it is. But it was on the moment, so I remember sitting down and holding my phone out at arm's length and putting it on speakerphone myself, and I'm like, what do I say? And I'm praying in the moment, God, give me conversational courage so I don't turn into a blubbling, bubbling, you know what I'm saying, blubbering fool right now. I want to be able to talk to my dad the last chance I get to talk to my dad before he dies. And the nurses all say, oh, he can, he can hear, and, and I know he's unconscious, but people in comas, they say they can hear, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm like, okay, dad, I remember reading Psalm 23, and it's kind of special because right before we put him in the earth, I read it over his casket as well. But what do you say in those moments? What those final words, how do you sum up a life when he's your hero? I remember saying, what do you say in them? Well, I remember saying things like, um, you know, Dad, I'm the man I am because of you. I love you, Dad. Thank you for all you did. I remember saying, oh, what else did I say? I get to continue your legacy, Dad. 
I love you. I hope I made you proud. See, that's the kind of moment we're right here. We're finishing 1 John. This book, John's been hammering two or three notes again and again and again, and now this is his last chance. Now, we don't, we don't know if John's on, on his way to die. We have no idea. He's, he's nearing the end of his life, but this is his chance to give that summation, that last opportunity to tell his little church what needs to be said. Remember, 1 John 5, 13 to 21. That's our focus. That's where God just kept leading me in my quiet time. I had other things planned, but I'm like, you know what? We've got to do this. So in our, t- in, our, in our page tonight, I've got four things that summarize the book of 1 John, but also fit in nicely with this text here. Four things to remember. And I picture the wise old man leaving this legacy to his younger church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this evening. I thank you for this these dear souls that have been journeying alongside me in this book. I thank you for all that are listening to this voice on the podcast even. God, you are a faithful God, and we trust you. We turn to you in all areas of our life, and um, we celebrate you. Thank you for your word and for this opportunity to study it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, 1 John 5. We'll start in 13 to 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Number one, no matter how tough life gets, you can always trust God. No matter how tough life gets, you can always trust God. My dad said to me, Joel, you either trust God or you don't, and you can't fake it either way. You just can't fake trust. You can fake a lot of things, but not trust. I like to say to people, life stinks. Life sometimes really stinks, but God is always faithful. You can always trust God. And look at the things we get to trust God for. We get the best knowledge of all. I write these things to you, verse 13, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John ended his gospel, his 20-chapter gospel, the book of John, the gospel of John, with this. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, John in his gospel, his focus was, I want to introduce Jesus to you so you can know who this Jesus is so that you can read John 3.16, for example, so that you can understand that he is the way, the truth, and the life, so you can understand how the Father is involved in your salvation, how the Son is involved, and how the Spirit of truth in John 14 and 16 is going to lead you into all truth. John introducing the world to God, and he ends his gospel with, he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So when we get to his epistle, 1 John, that was like the Gospel 101. This is like Gospel 201. Now it's all about, we don't need affirmation that you, that you can know Jesus and that you can have to be saved. No, we, we took care of that in the Gospel. Now we're talking about your assurance of eternal life. Now Jesus hinted at that in the Gospels. 
He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so the, the idea, come to the Father, what? You mean there's something deeper, longer lasting than life? There's something more? Yeah. No matter how tough life gets, you can always trust God. The best knowledge of all is knowledge of your eternal life. What could possibly be greater than for you to know that you have eternal life? Don't you remember in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death? But the gift of God is, 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 is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The greatest thing possible is eternal life. Well, isn't salvation possible? Yes, sal salvation is what secures that eternal life. So death is not, it, it, the sin and death is not the last pages of your book. But forgiveness and reconciliation and then eternal life. Yes, the best knowledge of all is that you have eternal life. Yes, it doesn't matter what you go through. That is the great perspective maker. Well, life is hard. Yes, it is. However you want to put it, life's throwing you a curveball, the terriers are nipping at your heels, you're holding tough cards, blah, 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 whatever you put. Yes, life really stinks sometimes. But we have eternal life, Christian. Eternal life. The best knowledge of all. Number two and 14, confidence that comes from a relationship. This is the confidence we have. You see, John wants you to have confidence. Confidence. That we have an approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. A kind of confidence that comes from that relationship. In John 11, in the Lazarus story, where Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the grave, so they took away the stone then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Don't you know, my brothers and sisters, our context is different from that, but we can have the exact same confidence that Jesus has and had. That when he prays, his Father listens. That's our confidence. No, we are not Jesus. No, we are not perfect, sinless son of God. That can, but we have that confidence. We have the confidence here. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. Now, this doesn't mean we all get to pray for Ferraris and thin bodies. Our big bank accounts or whatever. We're praying according to his will. And that's going to play out here in the next section. Confidence that comes from your relationship. Well, I just can't pray. Wrong. Why would God listen to me? Because you're born of Him. Why would God care to listen to my prayers? Why would God even waste His time on me? You are not a waste of time to God. You are in a relationship with Almighty God. I mean, what things are we remembering? What are the great big snapshot themes that we've had in 1 John? We've learned about God's character. We were told God is light. In Him there is no darkness. We were told God is love. We learn the centrality of Jesus, that His blood purifies us from our sins, that He's our advocate with the Father. We learned all about the Christian walk. Don't love the world or anything in the world. Living in the light, but not in the darkness. We learned about being born of God. We learned all about committed love, loving one another with actions and truth. And we love God because he first loved us. We learned all about affirming truth and discerning against falsehood. We learned about Christ and antichrist. We learned about the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And we learned about having assurance and confidence with eternal life, with prayer, 
and belonging to God. These are the central things we've looked at. Week after week after week, verse 15, your prayers matter to God. And we know that He hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Because again, we're praying for His will to be done. What kind of prayers are that, Joel? A popular prayer years ago was the book came out, The Prayer of Jabez. And if you pray the right way, God's going to give you what you want. Nope. Praying the right way is getting what God wants. And why would God not answer that prayer? You're praying that God, I want what you want. So please, so that's what Jesus prays. My goodness, Matthew 6. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is an obvious thing that God's will is being done in heaven. Who in heaven is going to thwart God's plan? Nobody. So Jesus is saying, as it exists in heaven, may it exist on earth. So God, I'm not going to pray for my will to be done. I'm going to pray for thy will to be done. So the things I'm going to ask are not selfish things anymore. They are praying with God's heart for God's will and God's way. And then, by the way, watch God work because his plan is going to unfold. His sovereignty is never going to be compromised or questioned. He has no plan B, so you're praying, God, may your plan A flourish. Thanks for using me. May I see your will happen in my life. That's an awesome prayer. Thy will be done. And yeah, you're praying for your daily bread and you're praying for forgiveness and strength to forgive others and that kind of stuff and lead us not into temptation and deliver. Okay, but you're praying for his will to be done. Wow. You can have confidence with that kind of prayer, boldness to go before God and say, God, I love you and I love the, what you're doing in this world. Use me as a part of it. Your will be done. the very one who spoke the stars into existence is listening to you in that moment. Even you. That's the kind of confidence John's talking about here. Your prayers matter to God. Number one, no matter how tough life gets, you can always trust God. Number two, the best way to love others, because John's been talking about that. Love people, love people, love people, love people. The best way to love others is to pray for them. Oh, that seems awful cheap. Yeah, your love shouldn't be costing you an arm and a leg. Your love should be selfless. The most costly love has already existed. It was the cross. You're not going to outspend Jesus when it comes to love. The best way to love others is to pray. Is it the only way to love others? Of course not. But it's the best way. It's your opening move. It's your closing move. I remember when I was dating, and I was dating a Christian girl. I dated one well, one woman before, before Jennifer, my wife, and, and, and it was, okay, we're going to pray. Is this God's will? We're going to give God the first word before we start dating. We're going to take a whole week, and we're going to pray. The first day, and we're going to pray all the way through. We're going to give God the first word and the last word if we're going to start dating. Just the way we did it. Your prayer, your prayer life, your prayers matter to God. The best way to love others is to pray for them. Now, John gives a, a kind of an odd example here. I say it's odd because a lot of ink's been spilled. I'm going to try to clean this up as best I can. Verses 16 and 17. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, 
you should pray and God will give them life. Our Catholic friends love, love this. They've got two different kinds of sins. Sins that are more uh, mortal sins and other sins. Okay, that's not where we're going. But this, this, is, this, this, this passage right here is huge in certain parts of the world. If you see any brother or sister, again, we're talking Christians here, commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is, there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, what in the world are you talking about there, John? It just sounds kind of confusing the way he goes about it. Sorry, Holy Spirit. But it's just got to unpack it here. So number one here, intercede for your wayward family members. All throughout 1 John, for some reason, the, 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 the seceding group that was trying to succeed away from the church, they were known for not loving each other. And all throughout this book, John's been saying, love each other, love each other, love each other. Love each other inside the church. Be known as people who love each other. And this world is full of hatred, but not the church. The church should be full of different stuff, different motivations. Loving your neighbor as yourself. So this first category here is your wayward Christian brother. A brother or sister caught in sin. Pray for them. Intercede for them. Intercession is like, I'm going to stand in between danger and you. I'm going to put myself there. Second of all here, unrepentant sin leads to judgment. So if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. It's really tempting just to go, oh, that must be the unpardonable sin and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You could go there. But think about it logically. Because he says here in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. So we know from Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, so the paycheck you earn for being a sinner is death. Adam and Eve had to learn that. Their bodies began to decay once they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, eventually leading to their death. The wages of sin is death. All sin is going to lead to death. Lazarus learned that. He died. But does John leave it there? He says, no, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. So what's he talking about here? Well, John wrote a book after this called Revelation. And in Revelation 20, there's this passage here. Then as the great white throne judgment. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Oh. So it's dead people being judged, people who are already dead being judged. Well, think about it logically. If heaven is considered eternal life, what would hell be considered? Eternal death, a second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the, in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, that second death. So I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. Christian, does your sin lead to the lake of fire? No. No. Because we have one who conquered death in our place. Now, it may, we, may, we may all die. 
But fully and finally, is death the end of our story? No, because we have eternal life. So there is a sin that does not lead to death. That sin is of a, of a repentant Christian who, who has Jesus as their Savior. That sin of theirs is paid for. It does not lead to the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, John writes. There is a sin that leads to death. Yeah, the unrepentant, the ones who never know Jesus, the ones that are seceding away from John's church in 1 John. If Jesus has not paid the price for your sins, if you have not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, if you have not given your life to him as the Gospels describe and the epistles ratify, then what is your destiny? Revelation 20 is your destiny. Because your name is not found in the Lamb's Book of Life at that point. And the good news of the gospel is tempered by the bad news, the hard-to-hear news, the not very tolerant news, the lake of fire, death, eternal death. Weren't I supposed to still pray for those people? Are you telling me I'm only supposed to pray for Christians who are sliding back and need to be brought back into the fold? Are you the ones who know better? Like, the, 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 I've already described my story, the me from my college years on. My goodness, a great decade of my life where I was this verse. It's like, oh, man. Knowing better was a Christian and still was sliding away. Like, what is your deal? I needed people to pray for me, and I, I stand here today because people were praying for me. That's it, Joel. We just have to pray for them? Obviously not. That would be d d d completely misrepresenting Luke chapter 6, which says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, we don't know as we pray for people that are, that are enemies of God what God's going to do with that. We don't know if God has chosen them for salvation, if they're ever going to repent. We have no idea. God's common grace is giving time to, lead to maybe they will repent, but we just don't know, but we're praying anyway. You see, our prayers matter to God. The best way we can love people who are in the church and need to be closer to God, and before you start thinking, oh yeah, I know a few. You know one. You. Me. Seriously. That's why we pray for each other. That's why we bear each other's burdens. That's why we never give up praying for each other. That's why positions like care pastor exist. You were all care pastors. Get on that. Pray for each other. Care for one another and actively love each other. So you're reading 1 John, like, okay, love. I'm supposed to love my Christian family. I'm supposed to love them. Yeah. How do I do that? Pray. Start with prayer. Continue with prayer. Prayer is the best way to love others. There's interceding for your wayward family members. There's also the unrepentant sin that leads to judgment. Sin that does not lead to death in terms of eternity, and sin that does. And John has this awkward moment here. So I'm not telling you to, 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 to not pray or to pray for He's not telling you to pray for them. He doesn't have to. We're praying for them to get saved. We're praying for them to turn to Jesus. The ones who are already in the church have already turned to Jesus. We're praying for them to get their life back together. We're praying for them to turn back to Jesus. 
The best way to love others is to pray for them. No matter how tough life gets, you can always trust God. Number three, belonging to God comes with expectations, but also blessings. Belonging to God comes with expectations, but also blessings. 18 to 20. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are the children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is true God and eternal life. Boy, that last little bit there is nice. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what does he mean by life? Does he give you your best life possible now? Yes. But what's the context of the way, the truth, and the life? The very next line, no man cometh unto the Father except through me. Eternity! He's eternal life. I love John here. Who is Jesus? He's true God and eternal life. It's good stuff. Don't continue sinning. Jesus saves and protects. Look at verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. We've looked at this in John 1, John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've already encountered all that. So John just reminds us here, don't continue sinning. Enough already. Something needs to change and be done about that old you that keeps coming back to be the present you and not the new you. That should be there, but instead the old you won't stop. It's a rated R image, but crucify that old you. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ in me. Okay, that's awful bloody. It is. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm on that cross too, metaphorically. Don't continue sinning, but Jesus saves and protects Jesus protects? Yeah, John 17, 12, the great high priest prayer of Jesus. Check out this. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So that scripture will be fulfilled. He's speaking of Judas there. So that scripture will be fulfilled. He protected them and kept them safe. Yeah, verse 18, the one who is born of God, capital O, one, that's Jesus, has keeps them safe. The evil one cannot harm them. Oh, well, doesn't, doesn't, he, doesn't Scripture say he, he prowls around like a hungry lion seeking to devour? He can't eternally harm you. Don't fear the one that can take your body but can't take your soul, Jesus once said. We don't face the second death. So what can man do to us? The lake of fire is not our destiny. The streets of gold are. Satan may have his word. He may have his way as, as long as God allows him to have his way. But again, all he can do is the last gasp of an already defeated foe. He can't outthink or outplan God. And yes, he's behind all the martyrdoms we still face around the world. Christians are the, the most persecuted entity ever. Still all around the world. Jesus saves and protects. We have one last either or, verse 19. We know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So when John earlier said, do not love the world or anything that is in the world, he's speaking in terms of worldviews, 
speaking in terms of broad strokes, we are to love the people of the world, our neighbors, love your neighbor as yourself. We are to love them with the love of Christ, a love that hopefully leads to repentance by your example. Let your light shine among men that they may see and praise your Father in heaven. You see, there's a way you should live this life. You should be loving your Christian family so much so that the outside world's going, wow, that's different. By this, the world may know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Yeah. Hmm. Another either or. Either you are living of the world or living of God. Either you are living for Christ or for those opposed to him, anti, against Christ. One more either or. We've had either ors. A or B. There is no C. There is no A and a half. There's no fence to sit on. In John's later book, Revelation, you're marked by the beast or sealed by the lamb. There's no third option. When the world says there's a third option, when the, oh, there's black and there's white and there's a bunch of shades of gray. No, gray is a bunch of shades of black. To use the example. There's Jesus and there's not Jesus. And if you're having to argue yourself or rationalize your sin or, or whatever you have to do, you're still sinning. Knock it off. Either or is your allegiance. What is your, where is your allegiance? Is it to Christ or to Antichrist? Well, I would never serve the Antichrist. Oh, really? Oh, really? Jesus says, deny yourself. Are you denying yourself? If you are unrepentantly living in your sin, you are not. This verse convicts. God has given understanding, responsibility is to know him. Verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. True God, eternal life. So this is one of those things where, oh, who's responsible for knowing God? Well, thankfully, God has given you the ability to know him. But now he expects you to take that step to know him. I used to think I knew how to drive a stick shift. <laughs> Until I, 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 I house sat for uh, my, my great college friend, my seminary pal, Nate. He says, hey, Joel, I realize you can't come to, uh, to our wedding, but... Uh, would you watch over my house and watch our dog that's there? And uh, by the way, you have access all you want to drive our really sporty, sporty Mustang. All you want. If you put any gas in it, let me know. But it's parked back at seminary. You've got to go there and drive it back. And you can have at it. You know how to drive stick, don't you? <laughs> I thought I did. There's knowing, and then there's not able to get that thing out of the parking lot because it keeps stalling. Now, thankfully, I didn't get it going. I, never, I, I didn't grow up with a stick shift. There were no manual transmissions in my family, and I never had to learn it. By that time, I also had MS, and I, it's, it's really hard to, to navigate pedals, especially when they have kind of race car like pedals in them, and they're really hard to work the clutch next to the brake, and I'm just like, okay, I can't really... I wasn't meant to get that car out of the lot. But it was fun to sit in. I thought I knew, but I didn't know. Do you know? 
we know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. It isn't a theoretical exercise. It's not one of those logical gymnastics exercises of your brain. We get to know God. There's intimacy in that knowledge. We know him. We can have a relationship with him. Yes, the God. Why would he care to know me? Who cares? He does care to know you. Wow, you have a responsibility to know him. You have a responsibility, and you're in this class, you're, you're, you're doing things that are good. You have a responsibility to spend the rest of your life getting to know your Savior. Not just know of him, know him. Number four, stay faithful to God as you face the allure of the other. Stay faithful to God as you face the allure of the other. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Verse 21. Well, that's just kind of a, an odd, succinct way to end the magisterial, theologically vibrant, wonderful book of 1 John. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Mic drop. Done. Really? That's it? What more do you want him to say? What more about Jesus needs to be said? Wow. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. That word keep, I spent a lot of time on that word today. It is a past tense imperative that is active. The Greek language is so blessedly precise. God chose the absolute perfect time in human history to reveal his New Testament. There's nothing as precise as Greek. Hebrew's good too. But Greek was not only the lingua franca of its day, it was everywhere. But it was so technically precise. You could communicate exactly what you want to communicate and you could dig into those words and just get lost in the beauty and the wonder of wow God. Wow. That word means to guard. Keep yourself from idols. Guard yourself. It's a word that's in the past tense but it's an imperative. Like you must do it. It is imperative that you do this. But he puts it in the past tense. And past tense, or in the Greek aorist, imperatives have this force that bleeds into the present. Like it was settled in the past, but it's still commanded for you right now. So have the same kind of powerful certainty right now as if you would if you did something in the past. I've already done it. It's already done. Yeah, that's right. So I have confidence. It's already done, right? Yeah, it's already done. But guess what? Keep doing it. Keep guarding yourself with that same kind of emphasis on completion perfection of accomplishment it's been done so how serious are you in guarding yourself from God's substitutes idols idols are all about control think about idols in the ancient world the Baals and the Chemoshes and the Molex and the Asherah all those gods they were fertility gods they were gods of the number one type of fertility which was the fertility of crops it wasn't about sex. Oh, that was playing into it. But it was about if Baal is the lightning god and the lightning god, quote unquote, fertilizes the soil by sending lightning down from heaven to the earth, now all of a sudden rain accompanies it and that makes crops. And those crops are your entire economy. And whether you're going to eat this winter is all tied up in that. You might say, well, 
I worship Yahweh of Israel, but you know, I'm going to cover my bases. And I have to have a good harvest. So maybe I'll throw a bone over here and tickle Baal's chin a bit. Because if I pay him and I do the thing that I'm supposed to do, I'm going to get what I need to get. Do you see here the control there? And all this impeachment stuff, the quid, quid pro quo keeps coming up. This idea of I'm going to scratch the back, you're going to scratch mine. I'm going to expect things when I give things. That was idolatry 101. If I do what I'm supposed to do, if I, if I do all these things, I'm going to get, get, get. Idolatry is about control. It's about, and that control is manipulation. We've talked about this before. Manipulation belongs in no healthy relationships. Boundaries need to be in relationships. Manipulation, never. If it's in your marriage, stop. If it's in your friendship, stop. If it's in your, 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 your parents and child relationship or child to parent, stop. Manipulation is not good. Boundaries are not manipulation. Manipulation is about control, about getting things. Idols are all about secrecy. In John 3, Jesus says that the light shines in the darkness. But people in the darkness don't want that. Oh, I know I didn't. Lord, no. I wanted my secrecy. I wanted nobody to know. In fact, when I first started to go to Celebrate Recovery to get my life in order, I went to Celebrate Recovery like an hour away because I wanted nobody to know that there was a pastor who struggled with this kind of sin. The shame I felt. Like, I, I want nobody to know. Yes, many years ago, but still, it's like it was yesterday. Idols are about secrecy. Idols are about selfishness. If there's something in your life that you know doesn't need to be there, and you're willing to sin to keep it, it's an idol. Even things that are good, but you're willing to sin so it's not taken from you, that's an idol. It would do to think about your life right now as I gear myself up for my closing example. What is in your life that does not need to be in your life, that you know is not of Christ, that you know is more anti-Christ than Christ? Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's something you're doing or something that you know you shouldn't be doing. Maybe it's something that you know you should be doing and you're not doing. And if somebody were ever to, 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 to call you on that in love, say, you know what? What about this? What's going on here? Well, you go into rationalizations and lies and, and, and you eventually anger and how dare you and, you know, look at the speck of wood in your own eye, pal. Like, hold on. What are you willing to sin so that nobody knows about? To keep doing what you're doing. That's an idol. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. I'll never forget a, a young man named Tavis. One of the reasons I haven't forgiven him because I've never met anyone else named Tavis. I met many Travises, but this is a Tavis. I was early on in my pastorate here in, uh, in Prospect Heights here, and I did this event, a small church pastor. I got to try to get young people in. I did this thing called Wings on Wednesdays. We'd go across the street over there to uh, Buffalo Wild Wings, and a bunch of us 20, I was in my late 20s, but a bunch of us 20-somethings, you know, mostly guys, in fact, all the time guys, we'd go over there, and we'd, we'd have some wings and talk about life. And one night, it was just me and Tavis. Now, Tavis, I mean, this guy seemingly had it all. 
He was handsome. Just perfect, like, he, he just, just came back from serving, like, in Afghanistan. or something. He had, like, the soldiers build, everything, the attitude. He was just a just wonderful guy. He was one of those guys that you could think he could walk into a bar and go home with any woman he wanted. He didn't have that attitude, but he would just, you, you, you would hear the stories about guys who were just, like, the guy, this alpha male, perfect guy. And all the rest of us geekier guys are looking at this guy going, wow, man, his life, he must have a fun life. And one day I let it slip. Talking with Tavis, and he was telling me about, he was telling me about um, the bar life and about his uh, escapades. Never short of dates. I'll just clean it up nicely. And I got this little sparkle in my eye. And I don't say, beware of people who are the heroes of their own stories. I am not the hero of this story. And I had this moment where I said, you know, wow, that must have been something, huh? I was married. I had a happy life. I'm just, I never was dateable. I never was a dating person. I never had, I never had this moment where like I could go out with any girl I wanted to ask out or anything like that. I had none of that. I, I, just, I just had all this loneliness crept up from my past. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm sitting next to somebody who I could now pull information out of him and learn about what that life would have been like. So I slipped for just one second as a pastor and I allowed just some awe to creep into my conversation. Thank God for Tavis in that very moment. I didn't cry at the beginning when I thought I was going to cry. I'm choked up here because God moved through that young man and he looked across that table. We got wings all over our hands or whatever. And he, he kind of holds his bone, boneless wing of me or something. He says, don't even go there. You have the real thing. I could bring home any of these girls I wanted to. And I have. But I'm lonely. This life is so empty. There is no purpose in the sexual things I can do. There's none of that. I'm empty. You have the real thing. So don't you ever let your brain go to that what if, that you could have what I have. And then he said something I still barely believe. He says, all of us guys that go home with all the girls like me, we envy you. me we don't have what you have we don't have the real thing all that we have is a substitute and the substitute sucks we hate it but it's all we have you have the real thing so pastor don't ever go there don't let yourself go there right now I told you I'm not the hero of this story I've never met that man again he's moved away if, you're, if somehow you're listening to this, Tavis, thank you. But let me tell you what, my friends. That's behind verse 21. You have the real thing. That probably was like a Pepsi ad or something. You have the real thing. Right? <laughs> like a long time ago. This is it. Your destiny is not the lake of fire is the streets of gold.
you have the real thing. Don't you ever long for the, the fake thing. The cheap substitute. No matter how enticing it may be, knock it off. No matter how enticing it may be, I need to be told, I needed to be told that day, knock it off. Don't go there. You have that thing. And I was just talking about dating life and marriage. This is talking about eternity. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. The cheap imitation knockoffs. Don't let them be part of your life. Thus ends the book of 1 John. Thanks for letting me share.